Yo, what is going on, guys? Welcome to the first debut episode of the Mike Bartner Show. We obviously had some live streaming issues this morning. <laughs> it is what it is. We're going to get it figured out. It's unacceptable in the moment. I'm not going to freak out. I'm just going to laugh at myself for being an idiot. But going forward, Monday, we will have that figured out. I'm really excited to get this underway. It's definitely an interesting way to start the show, having it being a live show. And our first episode is pre-recorded because right now we can't really figure out the live aspect of it, but we have all the topics, we have it all prepped, so I still wanted to give you guys a show today, and especially because some of these topics happened recently, we're going to dive into it. This show is going to be, today's show is probably going to be like 35, 40 minutes, just because we don't have a ton of news in terms of like NHL movement, player movement, players signing, but it's still going to be around 35 to 40 minutes. We're going to talk about the Sheldon Keefe extension, we're going to talk about the Evan Bouchard contract and how the Oilers, their window is kind of pretty short. We'll get into that later. Also one through eight seating. Should they go back to one through eight? And what are the pros and cons of divisional seating? Because I do think people are so against it. There are some pros. We're going to go over them. And then of course the Canadian player pyramid, what I have is the the headline of this show. And lastly, I'm going to do the giveaway. I don't know if I'm going to do it on this. I'll probably do it either on Instagram or uh, TikTok just so we do it live. If a pre-recorded giveaway, that's shady as hell. But without further ado, let's get into the first question officially underway. Hey, Mike, wanted to get your thoughts on the Sheldon Keefe extension. It seems quite odd to extend the dude after just one playoff series win instead of wait and, wait and see the, the year play out. Also, what are the odds he survives the entire extension? So with Sheldon Keefe, I think we need to ask ourselves, first off, he might not be the great coach that is going to get the Leafs over the hump, but I do think he is being underrated. He is definitely not a bad coach. When you look at his record, he is one of the winningest coaches in NHL history, especially when you look at the Leafs. He's by far their most winning coach of all time ahead of Pat Quinn, any guy over 25 games. He has over a 9% higher points percentage ever. For those on audio, Sheldon Keefe has a 67.6 points percentage. Pat Quinn has a 59.1. Everybody else is below them. Mike Babcock, for reference, had a 55.7. So although... Don't get me wrong, the playoff success is definitely right now. Sheldon Keefe, as your coach, he's proven that if you give him talent, he can spit out a 108, 110-point team consistently, which, again, I know playoffs are what matter with the Toronto Maple Leafs. They're not trying to win the Atlantic Division. That's not their goals. But when you look at that, compared to other teams in the league, think about, like, an Arizona Coyotes. That would be their Super Bowl to put up 108 points. So he gets you consistently to the dance. It's not really his fault that much that the players don't show up it is to a degree but it's not solely his fault and we look at him overall in terms of league history he actually has the highest points percentage by head coach in NHL history and again that is pretty biased and again for those who are audio he has the 67.8 percent Rod Brindamore 66.1 Scotty Bowman 65.7 so you look at him He's, he's a very good regular season coach. You know with him in charge, you're going to be a pretty decent playoff team, but can he get you over the hump? No, as of right now, that is not the case. He has a 13-17 and 17 career uh, postseason winning percentage, 43.3%, which is crazy because he's 1-5 in, in playoff series, but they always go to seven games. So he has that 13-17 and 17 record, which doesn't look that bad. So I think with Sheldon Keefe, looking at the contract, He's a fair coach. The other thing with this contract is it doesn't matter. The extension doesn't really matter. The extension happened just so they could get ahead of it, not have a lame duck head coach, because we've seen in the Toronto media, this is also why they just locked up Austin Matthews. 
it, it would be such a distraction having a lame duck head coach. Every single sports talk radio show, my personal favorite, Overdrive, they would nonstop be talking about, oh, is Sheldon Keefe going to say, oh, is Sheldon Keefe going to get fired if they start out slow? Now that he has that extension, although, again, I'm going I'm to get into it, he could get fired at any point, but they just wanted that peace of mind so the media and the team is not nonstop nagging. They're already probably going to head into the season with, with Nylander being an unrestricted free agent heading into next season, they don't also need the coach. So the two priorities, locking up Keefe, not priorities, but just locking up Keefe, getting that over with, and locking up Austin Matthews, they have done that. William Nylander, if he wants $10 million, you're just going to have to play the season without him. And looking at Sheldon Keefe's contract, this is, again, why it doesn't matter. You look at Mike Babcock. He signed an eight-year, $6.25 million contract with the Toronto Maple Leafs. He was, he was fired four and a half seasons into that. Three and a half years left on his deal. They were willing to pay that $6 million. You know how much Sheldon Keefe gets paid? Sheldon Keefe right now on his deal next year gets $1.95 million. Uh, we, we can maybe assume he got like a COVID inflation bump on that salary. He's getting paid, let's say, two point two five. Still, three years, which is what he has left for Sheldon Keefe, is basically the equivalent of one Mike Babcock year. So again, the, if the Leafs were able to swallow mid-season firing Babcock with three and a half years left on his contract, they will easily fire Sheldon Keefe if he starts out slow this year, if the Maple Leafs lose in the first round. So it, it's really a non-issue. They just want to get rid of this off their plate, off, this, off the media's off the media's back in terms of having those distractions. So that's why they mainly signed him to this extension. They will hap not happily fire him, but they will easily fire him. And another thing, when looking at this extension, Bradshaw Living got hired late. He was hired May 31st for the Toronto Maple Leafs. A lot of coaches, a lot of the top coaches were already hired by then, the teams that had vacancies. So he came in late. He was doing a full evaluation as the overall organization. So when it came to head coach, he looks, he says, oh, this guy consistently gets us easily in the playoffs like let's just let him play out the year maybe give him extension get the media off my back he thought I might as well just give him another year see what coach coaching candidates come up next year instead of getting the scraps the the June July scraps in terms of coaching candidates for this summer so in terms of Sheldon Keefe it's really not that big of a deal. Again, they're going to they're gonna fire him if he doesn't perform. This is not saying that he's going to last the extension. In terms of odds of, of surviving the entire extension, he has three more years left. That's kind of fat. That is kind of fat. Three years. The average coach probably is on the job for three and a half years. Keith's been on the job for four and a half years, I think, now. So is he going to have a seven-year run in Toronto? I would say there's like a 25% chance because maybe even 20, because when you look at it, even if he makes the Eastern conference finals, saves his job next year, the pressure is still cup or bust the following year. Like if he makes the Eastern conference finals, or even the Stanley cup finals, and then they lose in the first round the next year, he could get fired. And then if they lose in the first round again, he could get fired. So this isn't just a two year extension. There's a year built in. So this is the next three years. Even him winning the Stanley Cup, if they if they lost back to back first round, like I now maybe not if they win the Stanley Cup, but still he is not he is still on the hot seat. He's one of the top coaches on the hot seat, so I I don't think Sheldon Keefe is gonna survive this extension. I would put it at around twenty percent because the players do like him, so that's kind of why they just gave him this extension overall. But moving on, good question from Aiden. Second question comes from us about Evan Bouchard in the Edmonton Oilers. I was wondering what do you think Evan Bouchard's contract is going to be after his two-year $3.9 million one is up? 
Also, what do you think they will need to do to clear money for Dreisaitl? For him, Dreisaitl, McDavid, in order to re-sign all three. From Charlie, Charlie Allen. It's a very good question. The Edmonton Oilers obviously re-signed Evan Bouchard to a two-year, $3.9 million contract. I really like the value that they're going to get over the next two years with Bouchard on that contract. At at this point, $3.9 million is like low-end second pair money, arguably like high-end third pair. Justin Hole got like $3.3 million. So when you look at that, ideally in my perfect world, they would have signed Bouchard to a longer term contract. But if it was going to be five, six years, you would have had to give him somewhere between probably six to $7 million. So looking at Bouchard, I think he's going to be fantastic on this deal. You look at him over the, over the end of the season, last 19 regular season games, he puts up 19 points in 19 games. And then in the playoffs, 17 points in 12 games. So he put up 36 points. He put up 36 points in 31 games. He's not, I don't think he's going to do that next season. That's Eric Carlson, 95 plus point pace. But can he be a reliable 65 to 70 point guy? I think that's more than reasonable on that power play. The power play is definitely going to slow down a little bit. It's not going to be like the greatest ever or in the playoffs when it was like 44%. It's going to come back down to earth, but Tyson Berry was putting up near 60. I think he put up like 65 points in his prime on that Oilers power play. So I think you look at Evan Bouchard, let's go to the advanced stats. He's great in terms of even strength offense, very good power play. And defensively, he was a total liability last year. I'm not going to act like he was at all serviceable. He was like Quinn Hughes in his rookie year. But this year, he did take a pretty positive step. He's not a lockdown defensive defenseman by any stretch, but he went from a liability to being below average, average, He's not going to make an egregious mistake. He's not going to take a horrible penalty. He's just going to be okay. And when you get 65 to 70 points and you're okay defensively, that is to- that is an elite top pair power play quarterback. That is going to be worth 7 to $8 million once his contract comes up. If he stacks back-to-back 65 to 70 point seasons with solid defensive metrics and he's 25 years old in his prime, the Oilers are going to have to pay him, which is why you look at the Oilers' salary cap situation, talking about how they're going to afford all of them. It's getting pretty dicey for the Oilers. They definitely have some horrible contracts, Jack Campbell, Darnell Nurse, but they have some really good ones, like a Leon Dreisaitl, like a Connor McDavid, like a Bouchard, like a Hyman, like a Ryan Nugent Hopkins. So I think their window for the next two is... It, Their window is the next two years in terms of them being an elite top-end cup contender because you have Dreisaitl, two more years at $8.5 million. He's worth $13.5 if the Matthews contract, probably $14. McDavid, three more years at $12.5. He could ask for whatever the max is, like $16.5, and the Oilers would have to give it to him. And Bouchard, uh, two years, $3.9 million. He's probably going to be worth six point five to seven million in the next two years. R and H in Hyman are only making five million dollars. You look at them; they're thirty and thirty-one years old. So, although they do have a lot more term left on their deal, they're going to be severe surplus value for the next two years. After that, we really don't know. They might start regressing hard. So, this Oilers core is all in for the next two years because once Bouchard, Drysital need those extensions, they're still going to be a playoff team. Don't get me wrong; as long as they have. 97 and 29 they're going to be in the mix they're going to be very good but in terms of high level contention getting basically your top five players Bouchard Dreisaitl McDavid Ekholm whatever top six players I guess Darnell Nurse is probably a top six player but he's not surplus value their top six players for the next two years 
are going to be well above their contract value. So you need to be going balls to the wall because after that, you're going to have to pay some of those guys or some of those guys are going to start getting older. So it is fully go time for the Edmonton Oilers. As to how they're going to re-sign Bouchard, Dreisaitl, and McDavid, I think the number one guy in the chopping block, I'm not breaking any news. First off, you're not trading Darnell Nurse because he has seven years left at $9.25 million. No one is coming close to touching that contract. He's not worth it now. He's not going to be worth any rebuilding team seven years. They're not taking a seven-year deal on. But the clear candidate is Jack Campbell making $5 million, four years left. They'd probably have to trade him the summer in two years when Dreisaitl and Bouchard are up. He's making $5 million, which if he bounces back, that's a decent value. But with Stuart Skinner only making $2.6 million the next three years, you're going to give those reins over to Stuart Skinner and you're going to need the salary cap to fill out your team. So you're going to get rid of Jack Campbell basically regardless, unless he's playing. We saw with we saw with Olmark, he won the Vezina. People want him traded on the trade block. So, and he, he also only makes 5 million. So as long as he doesn't become an amazing goalie again, even if he's a serviceable starter, which the Oilers badly need, he's going to get traded in two years, just as a cap casualty. That goes without saying. And the other thing you might be saying, maybe that's not enough in order to re-sign the two of them. The salary cap's going up. I feel like not, a few, not enough people are talking about this or acting like we are still in a flat cap system. You look at it, this year it rose $1 million to $83.5 million. Then it's going to go up around $4 million. Then it's going to go up another $4 million. So this is not 2019-2020 when Austin Matthews, Nylander, Marner all signed their big deals and then it was like, oh, and then it was like, oh, Salary cap, COVID happens. The salary cap is flat for the next four years. They're screwed because some of their other players want raises, but that salary cap isn't rising. They're going to get $4 million a year naturally just through the salary cap rising. It's going to be able to help afford the $5 million Dreisaitl raise, the $4 million Bouchard raise if he really pops, the $3 million McDavid rise if he's McDavid for the next two years, three years. But uh, so yeah, the, I think people are kind of overreacting on how it's it's not going to be like a, an extremely cap tight situation. They're just going to have to dump some of their bad contracts like a Jack Campbell, which when he has two years is not going to be the end of the world. But yeah, the Edmonton Oilers over the next two years better be all in. They're going to be able to re-sign Dreisaitl, McDavid, and Bouchard. I have no doubts. Those are McDavid and Dreisaitl, obviously. I think if Bouchard pops, those are going to be three guys that you can't find as in free agency, and if you trade for people, you can maybe find an Evan Bouchard, but then you have to give up a shit ton of assets for a 25-year-old 60-point defenseman. So they're going to get those deals done. But in the next two years, they better be balls to the wall because some of their older players are getting up there in age, and then obviously the big two, as well as Bouchard, are going to need new contracts. So that's my thoughts on the Edmonton Oilers. Moving on, we got an interesting question from Anton. We got... A question regarding one through eight seeding versus divisional. I wanted to get your take on the current playoffs platform. Personally, I think the one through eight playoff format should be brought back. The division champions would have the top seeds in each conference. And after the first round, the remaining teams get reseeded by conference. So when it comes to uh, divisional seeding, I, I only hear negative and rightfully, I mean, partially rightfully so, I think one through eight is the right call for the league to go back to. It just makes the most sense. I'll get into that. But there, there's far too much negative regarding divisional. There are some positive aspects. So although I'm not getting paid by Gary Bettman, I do kind of want to show the positive aspects. So we're going to do some pros and cons regarding divisional and, set, and all that. Um, 
So we're going to go over the current divisional system pros and cons. First off, the first pro for the current divisional system is the travel. What do I mean by that? It's not that much of a big deal. I'm about to show a map. It's not that big of a deal in the Eastern Conference, but in the Western Conference, travel is a major thing between divisions. You look at it, look at Vancouver versus Nashville. That is a four and a half hour flight. That Pacific Northwest versus that Southern Midwest, Chicago, St. Louis, that is massive. That is a four hour flight at the bare minimum. So when it comes to playoffs, when game five, six, seven, you're traveling Every other day, getting on a flight, two-hour two time differences, going back and forth, that's a big deal. That, that, is, that does make sense as to why the divisional format does make some sense. The fact that you're not doing this prolonged travel the first two rounds most of the time. Obviously, wild card can kind of flub that up with the one seeds in the wild card. But for the most part, the travel does make sense in terms of players not having to travel so far. Owners not having to pay for five-hour private jet rides. Not that big of a deal in the Eastern Conference, obviously. Most of the teams are in the Northeast and then the two Florida teams. But in the Western Conference, that is a valid reason as to why it is bad. Moving on to the number two reason. Number two reason. Easier to market rivalries. Easier to market rivalries. Like, I don't know. It takes so long with that. But when you look at it, what are you as a fan? Say, let, let's plop, plop you back down into 2016. What are you more likely to, to watch? The Pittsburgh Penguins versus the Florida Panthers. Or the Pittsburgh Penguins versus the Washington Capitals. It, with this divisional setup, because of geography, because of the amount of times that these teams play each other, there are far better rivalries through the divisional system than in the first round. Without a doubt, I'd rather watch Battle of LA, Battle of Alberta than Vancouver Canucks versus the Nashville Predators. There's nothing there in terms of divisional. You're most likely, most of the time, you're going to have far better first and second round matchups, which is a big deal for the NHL in terms of TV ratings. Look at it this year. One in the divisional system, obviously, sometimes there is wild card versus a team in a different division. The worst matchup of the first round was the Vegas Golden Knights versus the Winnipeg Jets, in part because there's just no... There's no real story there. There's no real rivalry there. there it's obviously Vegas is a new team, so that, that is kind of weird. But like that, that I wasn't staying up till 10:30 or starting at 10:30, staying up till 1 a.m. to watch that series because there was no divisional juice. There was no rivalry there, and as a result, and also just the Vegas Golden Knights were the far better team. But in, but I was watching L.A. Kings versus the Edmonton Oilers every night because those teams have bad blood. So in terms of marketing rivalries. It does matter for the NHL. It results in bigger TV ratings because in the first and second round, it's very matchup determined. Determining the matchups determine the TV ratings in the sense that this year I think the Leafs versus the versus the Lightning or Devils versus Rangers was like the highest watch series in all of the NHL in terms of U.S. numbers, which makes sense. Devils versus Rangers first round. So having that key matchup be in the first round obviously helps. The first and second rounds, having those rivalries help the TV ratings a lot. Obviously, once you get to the Eastern Conference in the Stanley Cup Finals and the Western Conference Finals, those matchups sell themselves because the stakes are so high. There's a trip to the Stanley Cup Final on the line. There's a Stanley Cup Final on the line in the Stanley Cup Final. Staying Stanley Cup Final way too much right now. But... <laughs> So, so those matchups sell themselves, but some of these first round matchups, for example, Winnipeg Jets versus the Vegas Golden Knights, those ratings absolutely tank because there's no juice between those two teams. So in terms of Gary Bettman wanting the best possible matchups, 
the divisional system, it does really benefit that. Another current divisional system pro is divisions should matter. They should matter. What do I mean? Oh my God. Divisions should matter. What do I mean by that? I mean that you play your division teams more. You play your division teams about three to four times a year in the schedule, and then you play the other team in that division, other team in that conference, the other division, two to three times a year. So if you're playing the teams in your division more, you should be rewarded in terms of maybe getting home ice because of that. That's why I agree with Anton that if we went back to one through eight, I think the two division winners should be the top two seeds because winning your division, there should be a real incentive to it. One through eight, is fantastic, but I think I don't like the idea of a division winner being the four seed because again, they beat their division. They play their division more. If we didn't have divisions at that point, if we're going just flat one through eight, why do we even have divisions? So there's divisions for a reason right now. I think the current divisional system maybe values them far too much, but I think there should be some value in the decision. So I think that one, two seeds should matter because you do play your division more. Obviously now we're going to go into the cons. Obviously, the number one con, it punishes teams in deeper divisions. This is this is really like the nail in the coffin as to why the main thing as to why I, I think we should go back through one through eight or at least something with the conference winners being the number one and two seeds because you look at it sometimes... The Metro is far better than the Atlantic. The Atlantic's far better than the Metro and vice versa with the Central and the Pacific. Sometimes teams are just at different stages in the division. One division's going through a massive rebuild. One is all in right now. And this has happened multiple times in previous years. I'm going to go through it right now. In 2016, Washington Capitals, President's Trophy winners, number one seed. They had to play the Pittsburgh Penguins in the second round instead of the Rangers and the Islanders. And just overall in this division, in this conference, four out of the top five seeds we're Metro teams. So the Washington Capitals win the President's Trophy. What's their reward? They play the eventual Stanley Cup champions in 2016, the Pittsburgh Penguins in the second round, instead of having a far easier matchup in the New York Rangers or the Islanders. The New York Rangers would have had home ice advantage in a one through eight system. Instead, they go on the road against the Pittsburgh Penguins, and even the Pittsburgh Penguins get screwed. Instead of playing a pretty bad Philadelphia team in the first round, obviously they eventually did win the Stanley Cup, so it didn't really matter for them. Instead of playing a Philadelphia team that would have been a walk in the park, they had to play a pretty good Rangers team. And then in the second round, they had to play the goddamn President's Trophy winner. So this stuff happens all the time. 2017, it was even worse. Washington, yet again, wins the President's Trophy, gets rewarded by playing a 111-point team, the Pittsburgh Penguins, who were the second-best team in the entire NHL last that year. They didn't have home ice in the second round. Columbus... Columbus was the third best team in the conference ahead of Montreal, who was the best team in the conference. You look at Montreal, uh, Columbus, what was their result for being a 108 point team, having five more points than the division winner in the Montreal Canadiens. They played the eventual Stanley cup champions in the Pittsburgh Penguins and would obviously go on to lose. And then, yeah, so on. So this stuff happens. It hasn't happened in recent years because we obviously had the COVID divisions and all that, but this happens all the time. Different divisions, and these teams get screwed. Columbus, 108 points. They have to play a 111-point team on the goddamn road in the first round. That is absolutely ridiculous. If you're serious about crowning your best possible champion, and don't get me wrong, the best teams should still go on a Stanley Cup run, but it definitely 
favors some teams and hurts others in terms of having this divisional system and having a far easier path to a Stanley Cup final. And that matters when, when if you're going through game seven after game seven because you're in a tougher situation versus, oh, I win in five. Oh, I sweep the second round. Oh, I win in, yeah, win in six the, the following round. That, that does matter. That does rack up miles on your body. So in terms of that, that is unfair. The other, the other con in terms of divisional system Rivalries get stale. I know I just said, like, the rivalries are cool, but they do get stale. You look at it going back to this. I love Crosby versus Ovechkin. Don't get me wrong. I'm very interested in what I'm watching them play. I hope they both make the playoffs playing the first round this year. That'd be fantastic. But there was a point in 2016, 2018, some of those years that I just went over, and also when the, when the Washington Capitals went on to go in the Stanley Cup, they played in the playoffs every single year. Three straight years, we had Crosby versus Ovechkin. First time, I was like, everybody's like, oh my God, this is amazing. The divisional format's awesome. There's so many rivalries. Then it's like 2017, it's like, oh, them again? Oh, okay, we'll, we'll just have to beat them, I guess. Then it's 2018, you look at the schedule, you're like, damn it, like this, this just stinks. So some of these rivalries get overplayed, overused. Toronto and Boston played a bunch together. So I think going forward... It, it, it especially it's only been happening for what nine seasons but we've seen so many repeat matchups year after year the kings versus the oilers just played back-to-back first round matchups that wouldn't have happened in a one through eight series so i think overall going back to the docks there's definitely some pros the travel easier to market rivalries divisions should matter there should be some reward to, to winning your division at the bare minimum but it punishes teams, very good teams that are in deeper divisions. The divisions are not all divisions are created equally. And the rivalries do get stale to a degree. So thank you for that question, Anton. Now, it's a moment you guys have all been waiting for. It's the Canadian Pyramid. We got the Canadian Pyramid. We're going to start at the top. Because I posted the graphic, like the hyping up graphic. And you guys could see like who's the top, who's the top, the next two, who's the three after that. It's like the first couple are pretty obvious. So let's go through them right now. First off. The best. The best is Connor McDavid. I don't think I really have to explain myself too much. He's the best. He just had the best season in the salary cap era. 64 goals, 89 assists for 153 points, as well as being fantastic in the playoffs the past two years. He has 53 points in 28 games the last two years in the playoffs. He definitely maybe could take his game to another level to get them over the hump, but he's holding his own. He's definitely holding his own. Connor McDavid, best player in the league, best Canadian player. Not that hard. The next two. Also pretty obvious. Kale McCarr, Nathan McKinnon. Second best duo in the entire league. I, I don't think that that's much of a debate. Kale McCarr, Norris last year, Consumite this year, 86 points last year, 29 points in 20 playoff games, as well as this year. I don't think he should have been a Norris finalist because he missed 22 games, but on a per-game basis, he was probably the best defenseman in the entire NHL with 66 points in 60 games while being fantastic defensively as well. And then Nathan McKinnon, his resume is, he doesn't have a heart win. I thought he should have won in 2020, but he has three heart finalists. This year, if he played all 82 games, he probably, they probably would have given him the nod over Matthew Kachuk just because he won the division. He had 128 point pace. He's consistently been over a hundred point pace the last couple of years. So just another stud, top five player in the league, top three center for me. Next up, we got the superstar tier. There's three guys in this tier. We're going to go through it right now. We got Mitch Marner. Mitch Marner, 90 points, 99 points this year, just barely missed 100. I remember there was some controversy that he, the least fans were like, he got his 100th assist, they didn't count it. But basically going forward, I think you can pencil him in for 
95-ish points, top five percentile defense in the entire NHL. He's one of the best two-way wingers, probably just best two-way players in the entire league. Fantastic skater, fantastic playmaker. Uh, maybe not a number one on a championship team, but he fits so nicely wrong, around Austin Matthews and kind of forms like a 1A, 1B that can go out and win the Stanley Cup. I don't know if they actually will. But Sidney Crosby, ageless wonder, 93 points still at in 82 games. Still a top 15 player in the league. He's not the most physically dominant anymore. He's not the fastest player. He does, does not the strongest player anymore, but his hockey IQ is still levels above other people in the league so that separates him and still makes him this elite player he still has a good shot he's still a very good skater but he has aged fantastically just because he is such a cerebral player and going forward on that penguins team i think he could sniff 100 i don't know about you guys but it's definitely possible Braden point the last one in the superstar tier 51 goal two-way center he does play with nikita kucherov i see that criticism a lot that Oh, he plays on Kucherov. Uh, he, he, no doubt he can put up all those goals. I think it goes both ways. Kucherov's definitely the better player, but Nikita Kucherov isn't putting up 80 assists unless he has an elite goal scorer that's putting up 51 goals like Braden Point. You don't, you don't accidentally put up 50 goals. He is a top 20 player for me and obviously been a number one center on back-to-back Stanley Cup champions teams. You don't just do that. He, he He's 1,000% valid. Moving on, we're going to go pick by pick now. We got the elite tier. There's five guys in this tier. You can probably pick some of them, but a couple of them might surprise you. Up first, Steven Stamkos. Bit of a down year for Stamkos this year in the sense that he only had 84 points after 106 last year. As he transitions to the left wing, I think we could see a bump in points just if he plays with Point and Kucherov. That line's going to be absolutely disgusting. Personally, if I was them, I'd probably spread them out, especially now that Killorn's gone. You had to replace Killorn with like, who, who did they even replace him with? I'm trying to think. Like Connor Sheary. So I'd personally move down Stamkos. But if he does play on that top line, I think you could see him go for 37 goals, 53 points for 90 points. I think that's I think my math's right. But uh he, he's not he's not that young Steven Stamkos or even two years ago where he can get you a hundred plus points and be the number one offensive force on a team. I think those days are probably gone, but he's still an elite player. Moving on to number two. Devontae's best number two defenseman in the entire league. I don't think it's close. He's a top 10 defenseman overall for me. The thing that kind of stinks with Devontae's is we're never going to get to see him be the number one. I I wish that he left. He is in a contract year, so if he pops off, I hope that he leaves Colorado just so we can see him flourish in a number one role because I've always loved Devontae's. I know people clown the Islanders for trading two second round picks. It's obviously a massive mistake. They should have traded 10 people before they traded Devontae's as a cap casualty. But he was my one, one of my favorite players in the New York Islanders. I used to pound the table saying this guy's an elite number one. Not an elite number one, but an elite elite top pairing defenseman before he got traded to Colorado. I said when he got traded to Colorado, him and McCarr are going to be fantastic. Him and McCarr have obviously been fantastic. His points did drop off a little bit this year. He went from 57 and 66 games last year to 50 and 80. I think he's going to hover around that 50 point mark as well as being one of the best defensive defensemen in the entire league he's just again like a Sidney Crosby such a cerebral player diagnoses and reads every single play always in the right position on defense always effective with his stick doesn't take like any penalties he's really the perfect number two defenseman and I think would flourish in a number one role moving on Brad Marchand's an interesting one 67 points in 73 games this year his defensive numbers did slip a little bit He's had, a, he's had multiple hip surgeries at this point, so 
I don't know if he's that guy that in his five-year prime was top 10 in heart voting every single year, was putting up 90 to 100 point pace. I don't know that. And especially when you consider Patrice Bergeron's not there anymore. I think he's definitely still an elite player, but it's going to be very interesting to see. Hopefully he gets reunited with Pasta. That, that'll definitely help him out offensively. But I think he's going to be a 70, mid-70s, very good defensively heading into next year. And I, I don't think he's going to be like ESPN. I don't know if you guys saw this. ESPN had him 45 points in 63 games. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. For a guy of his stature, they might think they might be lower on Boston than I am. But yeah, I think Brad Marchand's going to be an elite player again next year. But maybe not. He used to be like a top 15 player in the league for me. He's around top 25 top 30 25 to 30 we'll call it Dougie Hamilton I remember a lot of people were kind of writing off Dougie Hamilton after last year he broke his jaw the devil sucked uh he put up like 30 points in 60 games as well as being horrible defensively because the devils overall were just horribly defensively but this year he really popped 22 goals 74 points him and Jonas Siegenthaler Jonas Siegenthaler is a I don't know. I just botched that probably. But um, him and Siegenthaler were so fantastic. Siegenthaler being that amazing defensive defenseman, letting Dougie Hamilton cheat up on plays, play that offensive defenseman role. They posted a 55.5% expected goals percentage together. And I think going forward, he's with that Devils team. They show no signs of slowing down. I don't know if he's going to go 22 goals, 74 points again, but I would bet high 60s at the bare minimum. He was on my Norris ballot last year because... He was one of the best offensive defensemen in the entire league, as well as being solid defensively, and especially with Siegenthaler. They just work so well together, and as a result, Dougie Hamilton, elite player. Last for this role, row, roll, we got Mark Stone. I'm very high on Mark Stone. I still had him like number 24 on the MB top 50. A lot of people said I was like way too high on him, which which I thought was personally ridiculous. He's when he's healthy, I know that's a big if. Availability is the best. What is it? How does it go? Availability. I don't know. I'm going to botch that. But uh, Mark Stone, when you look at him, whenever he plays this season, I think he had 37 points in 41 games, playoffs, 24 points in 22 games. Whenever he plays, I think he's the best defensive right winger in the entire league. And whenever he plays, he's around the point per game. Fantastic defensively. Like, yes, he doesn't play during the regular season, but as long as he plays every single game in the postseason, which he does, he just battles through. That's a guy I want on my team. He's such a dog. I keep on going back to that one play in the Stanley Cup Finals. I think it was against the Panthers. Yeah, or maybe it was in the Western Conference Finals. But he he made some sick defensive play, then skates up the ice full speed, then finishes a goal. That is Mark Stone in a nutshell. The dude is an utter dog in terms of toughness, defensive prowess, two-way game. He's one of the best in the entire league. I don't think that's up for a debate. When Mark Stone is healthy, he is without a doubt a top 25 player in the entire league. Moving on. I, no, not moving on. This is our full elite tier. Five guys in the elite tier. Stabkos, Taze, Marchand, Hamilton, Stone. Next up, we got the very good tier. I have 10 guys in this tier. We got 10 guys. Up first, Sam Reinhardt. Sam Reinhardt's one of the more underrated players in the entire league for me. Talking about Mark Stone, Sam Reinhardt's also one of the best defensive right-wingers in the entire league. Back-to-back years of Selkie-level defense. The problem is, in order to get Selkie votes, you need to post like four or five years of very good defensive numbers. That's why I was surprised that Heischer and Marner got nominated last year. Usually it's like an old gentleman's club. Old (laughs) gentleman's club. But uh, usually it's like an an old gentleman's club, whatever. But uh, (laughs) uh, 
Yeah, he, I think he's eventually going to start getting Selkie recognition, but he's only been elite defensively for the past two years since he's really found his role on Florida. And 147 points in 120 games. His offensive numbers did dip a little bit this year. Only 31 goals and 36 assists for 67 points. But I think going forward, he's going to fluctuate between 65 to 75 points as well as being fantastic defensively. That's an elite player in my books. Next up... Carter Hart, weird-ass career for Carter Hart thus far. First two years, he posted a 915 and a 259. He was looking. There was, like, next carry price comparisons. I don't know if you guys remember that. Some of you guys might be too young for that. But Carter Hart was, like, the next great Canadian goalie. And then he absolutely, as a result, mainly in part, not mainly, but in part, the Flyers started playing, like, utter shit. So his numbers stepped down, and he was also just not playing good enough. He was putting up like an, eight, an, eight, an 880. That's just unacceptable, regardless of what team you're on. But this year, he really bounced back. He posted a 907. He had a 10.3 goal saved above expected. So you see that 907, you don't think it's that impressive. And if he was on a decent team, that's not that impressive. But when you look at the advanced stats, he was a top 12-ish goalie this year. And considering I saw him early part of his career when he was a good goalie, on a good, on a decent team, I think he's going to be their franchise goalie. And also, you look at him; he's only 25 years old. You look at a Shesterkin, a Sorokin; they debuted at like 25. So he he's been in the league; he's like an NHL veteran at this point. But for a goalie, he debuted very, very early, so he still has his future ahead of him. That's why I'm personally not really on Team Trade Carter Hart, just because he's only 25. If you can sign him to an extension, like this isn't Connor Hellebuck, you're going to start going through this rebuild. He's 30. Carter Hart is still going to be an elite goalie in three to four years when the Flyers are coming out of this rebuild. So if you can get the right offer, probably trade him. But right now, he's a very good goalie. Jordan Cairo, 37 goals, 36 assists this year. His points dipped a little bit, but he bumped up in 10 goals. Last two years has been about a point per game guy. His defensive numbers aren't that great, but the Blues are pretty shit overall defensively. I think going forward, he's going to be around the 35 and 35 guy. Not, not too much to say. Claude Giroux, fucking beast, man. Goddamn, I shouldn't curse, but he's a beast. He's a beast. At age 35, put up 35 goals, 44 assists for 74 points for the Ottawa Senators. And I see a lot of people... When talking about Claude Giroux, they think he was just a byproduct of Kachuk and Stutzla. But I, I kind of think the opposite. Not that he made them, but he was massive in their development this year. You cannot deny the fact that as soon as Claude Giroux comes in, Stutzla goes from 58 points. He would have took a step regardless, but 58 to 90. Kachuk goes point per game. And again, when you put up 35, 44, and 79, yes, he's probably heading, definitely heading into this year. He's the third best player on that line, but... That's very much one of the best lines in all of hockey. That's like saying uh, when Landeskog, Ranton, and McKinnon were cooking, like, oh, Gabe Landeskog's only the third option. Gabe Landeskog's still a very good player. So Claude Giroux, again, he's aged fantastically, just had his best season in the past, like, two to three years. And same thing with Crosby. He's such a good passer, and he's such high hockey IQ and overall hockey knowledge that he's able to continue to play at an elite level. Brett Burns, another older guy that shows no signs of slowing down. He goes from San Jose, the S-hole, shithole that San Jose was, to now playing with Carolina, playing with Jacob Slavin. Back in San Jose, he was playing with like a washed-up Vlasic or like Mario Ferraro or Eric Carlson. I don't think he played with Eric Carlson, but on the same line. But yeah, they're both right-handers. But um, yeah, he, he played with guys that 
couldn't play defense to what they needed to in order to be paired with Brett Burns. Brett Burns is a right wing playing defense. We basically know that. But when he goes from that, guys that are not that good defensively anymore, it was fantastic when Vlasic was in his prime and he could play with Brett Burns because Vlasic was one of the best defensive defensemen in the entire league which is what he has now in Jacob Slavin. So he goes from San Jose, posting pretty bad results, bad defensively, offense slows down. He goes to Carolina, plays with arguably the best defensive defenseman in the entire league, one of the best overall. It's not a surprise that he has a bounce-back massive year, post 61 points, as well as him and Slavin posting a 61.7 expected goals percentage, which was by far the highest out of any pair in the entire league that played over 400 minutes. So I think going forward, he's not going to win the Norris, most likely, but I think he is a top 20 defenseman at this point, even with his age. Even if he regresses a little bit, he's still going to be a high-end top pair guy. Carter Verhage, one of the more underrated players in the league. I know I'm using the term underrated a lot. Jesus. But not too much to explain on this one. Uh, 41 goals this year. Very good in the playoffs for the Panthers. He's, he's a goal scorer's goal scorer. I think if he plays with Barkov on that top line next year, he's going to be 35, north of 35, as well as posting good results basically everywhere else in terms of his game. Just, just an elite player, top 65, top 55 to 65 guy overall for me. Darcy Kemper, another, another underrated guy. Another underrated guy for me. He's not winning you the Vesna Trophy anytime soon. He doesn't have that, he doesn't have that ceiling of like a Philip Gustafson of a Carter Hart. But his floor is very, very high. You look at him over the last five years, goal saved above expected, 2018, 7.5, 2019, 8.8, 2020, 7.7, 2021, negative 0.2. That was his one average year. Two years ago on the Avalanche, 21.0, 2023, 8.8, even on a pretty bad Washington Capitals team. Again, He's just a very good goalie for me. He's going to give you, as long as your team's half decent, he's going to give you like a 9-12 to a 9-17, around 2.4 to 2.6 goals against, probably around 8 to 10 goals saved above expected. He is just Mr. Consistent right now, and he is getting up there in age. He could fall off, this could age poorly, but as of right now, I've seen him do it so many years, stack so many good seasons on top of each other, that I think at this point, you need to have him in your top 10, just because other goalies like Thatcher Demko, all over the place, Carter Hart, all over the place. Darcy Kemper, you know what you're probably going to get. So I think Darcy Kemper's a very good goalie. Robert Thomas, the name of the game, he's not scoring you goals. He's going to give you like 20, 22 goals a year, but he is one of the best passers in the entire league. This year at even strength per 60, he had six most points at even strength per 60. He's one of the best playmakers at even strength, one of the best passers in the entire league. Going forward, I think he gives you 20 to 25 goals, 50 to 60 assists, playing with Jordan Kyrou's obviously his main man. And as the Blues continue to get better with some of their young guys coming up, I think Robert Thomas could get you 80 to 85 points, maybe even 90 because he's such a good passer. So yeah, he's, he's a very good player. Vince Dunn. We got two more left. Vince Dunn, 64 points, number one defenseman on a team that was a hundred point playoff team last year that won around, beat the Colorado Avalanche. And in terms of his even strength offensive numbers, I was looking at evolving hockey, their ramp them. He had more, he had the highest even strength offensive production by a defenseman 
in terms of advanced stats analytically, obviously he didn't have the most even trend points or all that, but he had the most expected goals generation while he was on the ice ahead of Eric Carlson, ahead of the guy that put up 80, uh, that put up 101 points, ahead of Josh Morrissey, ahead of Adam Fox, ahead of everybody. He was number one. So he's one of the best even strength offensive defensemen in the entire league. I think that is going to continue next year. He's probably going to be around 60 points as well next year. And he's also solid defensively. It's not like he is like a Josh Morrissey. You're going to realize Josh Morrissey isn't on this list. He isn't like a Josh Morrissey that really is all offense, no defense. He he plays a complete game. I've, I've seen him develop since St. Louis. St. Louis, he was kind of stuck in a third-pairing role because they did have a very good defense score back when they were an elite contender. But once he gets to Seattle, you really get to see him flourish, really get to deal with the puck more in offensive situations, gain confidence, take more risks. And as a result, we really saw him explode in Seattle this year. And I think going forward, especially he got paid, he better keep on producing like that. And then lastly, got Jeff Skinner. Jeff Skinner, two years ago, 14 points in 53 games in the COVID-shortened year. Looked like he was done. Looked like he was absolutely toast. Obviously, the Thompson, uh, the Tuck-Eichel trade happens. They formed that line of Thompson, Tuck, and Skinner. Last year, 33 goals, 30, two years ago, 33 goals, 30 assists, 63 points. This most recent year, 35 goals, 45. 47 assists for 82 points in 78 games. One of the best even strength offensive lines in the entire hockey and all of hockey. Skinner is a massive, massive reason why. And similar to Giroux, he might be the worst player on that line. Yeah, Thompson's definitely the one. Tuck's maybe the 2A. Skinner's the 2B. But again, that that's a line of three top 75 players in the entire league. I think going forward, Jeff Skinner should be in the mid seventies points wise, as well as giving you 35, maybe even 40 goals. Fantastic goal scorer, fantastic player. The Jeff Skinner, he, he's, he, he is the Jeff Skinner, his Buffalo tenure, take out that COVID year, the 40 goal, then 33 goal. Then this year, he's been an elite number, an elite first liner and overall a very good player. So that's it. This is the full Canadian Pyramid. Let me know in the comments what do you guys think about it. Some of the snubs that I left off are John Tavares, Mark Scheifele, Josh Morrissey, Jonathan Huberto. Again, you could put them at the very good tier. You could put them there. I, I, I can't fit 15 people down there. That's the only problem. So as much as like, yeah, they're also very good players. I, I do take those guys over the others. But overall, yeah, that's the first show. I can't believe I went for... 45 minutes. Very impressed with myself. Next time it will be live. I'm not going to drop the ball like I did today. But thank you guys so much for watching. Let me know in the comments. What do you think about this episode? We're going to be clipping it all up. Reels, TikTok. On YouTube, we're going to have like each segment clipped up. Let me know what you think. And yeah, I'll post I'll post a little poll on the Instagram to see how the show goes. This, I'm very looking, I'm looking forward to this project. Sorry, I'm brain dead right now at the end of this episode. But I can't wait to see how the show goes. We're going to start bringing in guests. Once I figure out how to do a live stream just myself, then the next step is guests. Probably by, hopefully by end of next week, maybe we can have a guest in two weeks. I fully expect to have guests. I'm going to try to get NHL players. Try to get your favorite NHL analysts. But yeah, first episode's in the books. It was a very stressful day, but we got it done. Thank you guys for watching. Like, comment, subscribe, all that good stuff. See ya.